Hello everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. This is another episode of the Wayward Serialization, which is going to be chapter 9 and 10. If you have forgotten what happened in the previous part, it all went down. Um, Michaela contacted her parents and basically her mum told her not to come home uh, and refused to speak to her any further and actually hung up on her, which was pretty dramatic. As a reaction to that phone call, Michaela decided to stay with the witches that she's met at Wayward House and consented to be initiated into their group. The initiation was quite dark and a little bit spooky for her because a lot of magical shit happened and also she had to drink the blood of everyone else in the coven, um, which she was a little bit grossed out by and then she passed out right at the end. So we're going to pick up with Michaela at the start of chapter 9 where she's waking up after the initiation, finding all about the consequences of doing that and her new involvement with the coven, where she's obviously now allowed to see what goes on behind the curtain and the magic stuff that they get up to. The trigger warnings for previous chapters do apply to this. Those trigger warnings include underage drinking, mentions of underage drug use and mentions of different kinds of abuse, both emotional, physical and sexual uh, by parents and others. So go into this forewarned. Chapter 9 a jerk upright and a manky old flannel peels off of my face and plops onto the floor. My head is killing me, like I got utterly wasted and blasted heavy metal right into my ears all night. The room around me is dark, and I have no idea if it's the night of my initiation still, or whether I've lost a day. It feels like I might have. I've also had the weirdest dreams, like I was playing all of the characters in a fucked up play. I've been lying scared in a bed, with a cover that smelt like old vegetable oil listening to heavy footsteps coming up the hall and thinking not tonight please not tonight one more night just give me one more night please god just let me get out of here the door had opened and a pair of men's slippers tucked under maroon pajama bottoms had been reflected in the mirror hanging over the end of the bed i could see the slither of darkness that was the open door nikki wake up princess i felt my stomach twist the helpless, boundless rage and fear that hit me was so strong it almost blinded me to the sight of the man's legs coming across the room. I watched him in the mirror and I wanted him dead even before he slid his hand under the covers and touched my thigh. Then, like the bed had turned upside down and dropped me into another room, I was somewhere new. In front of me was a big tatty holdall with all my clothes in it. Only they weren't my clothes, but I recognised them and I knew I'd seen them before. Next to the bag was a huge pile of books, library books, and the utmost cover had a history of modern psychology on it. Fuck them, I said in a voice not my own, kicking the books over and stepping on their glossy covers. A piece of paper was crumpled on the floor. I looked down long enough to see the words suspended until further noticed, written in heavy black type. My knuckles were bloody and I knew somehow that I'd been fighting. Then, just like the first time, I slipped away, sinking into the floor as if the carpet tiles were melting into a bog. I'd been in a dark, intimidating study, and a man was shaking my shoulders. Looking up into his face, my brain told me I knew him, that he was my dad. But he wasn't, he was a stranger. In my house, Richard? How could you do something so disgusting in my house with him? He's one of the governor's sons, for God's sake. I was scared, and I could feel the tears sliding down my face. But I still shouted at him, in a voice that wasn't mine. A voice I'd heard that evening. I licked his voice. He loves me. I was jerking away before the man could reply. I'm sure the voice was Ilex's. Remembering the other scraps of the dream, I feel cold and shivery, like I might puke any second. 
It was all a bit creepy, dreaming about Ilex, dreaming that I was Ilex. I felt what it was like to be him and it had pretty much sucked. He'd been hurt and afraid and angry, just how I felt when mum and dad kicked me out. The rest of the dream had also felt a bit too close to home. So many different people in my head, all of them angry, all of them trapped and miserable. I put the pieces together. Campion had said she'd done something to do with psychology at uni. Had she been the one in my dream? The one with the suspension? Was Chronicle the helpless little girl in the bedroom that reeked of chip oil? The Harlow chippy she'd run away from? I shake off the idea and stand up, staggering as my dried up brain complains. I'd had a weird nightmare, that was all. Unless, of course, someone had put something a little stronger than wine in that goblet. Hanging on the back of the bedroom door is a set of clothes. A black skirt cut in handkerchief layers of net silk and velvet. The kind of goth clobber you get on market stores up and down the country. Over it is a black cord jumper, v-neck and velvety. On the floor is a bundle that turns out to be flat-soled black boots and a cheap little velvet bag, old and stained, with sparkly black beads like teardrops on it. Inside I find a plain notebook, the colour of cardboard, with a clicky biro. My own clothes are sticky with sweat and the new stuff does look more comfortable, if a bit like it's come from a dressing up box. Still, I have a look through my own bag and I find everything in it is wet. Looking up, I see there's a slight hole in the roof and as I watch, a couple of drops of skanky water fall down onto my bag. I put on the clothes that they've left for me, happy to have something that doesn't smell like mildew. Downstairs in the living room, Crane Chronicle are sitting on the sofa discussing something and going through a big tatty book. They look up as I come in and Chronicle's gaze is just a little too assessing for my liking. She'll do, she says eventually. Looks like you and Whiteheart were about the same size. Stone, you're going to be with me today. I realise that she's talking to me. I'm Stone now, not Michaela. It feels a bit weird, but at the same time, dizzyingly free. Like I'm a balloon with a cut string, flying far away. Where are we going? I ask. Supply run, Cray says. Me and Nara are going to be getting some of the free stuff. Herbs, dirt, things we pick on campus, but there's other stuff we need that we just can't find. Like? Food. Chronicle says with a smile. Painkillers, booze, you know, tampons. It's so early for talk of tampons, Ilex complains as he walks into the room, wearing black jeans and a black jumper. He looks at me and whistles. Look who's Queen Witch. I feel suddenly stupid in my get-up. Shut up, Ilex, Chronicle says. And mine are all wet, thanks to that hole in the roof, I say. Chronicle eyes me sceptically, then sighs. We're heading out in a minute. Get some food quickly and then report back to me. I go into the kitchen, which I haven't yet seen. It's a gross little room with ivy all over the windows, inside and out. Black mould creeping over the walls, piles of boxes and cartons on the grungy surfaces. The sink is disgusting, clogged with bits of instant noodle and peas. I take a cereal bar from a box and go back into the living room. Already the squat-like student atmosphere has changed and I feel like I'm in some kind of barracks as Cray and Nara take notes from the big scruffy book on the table, making a list of things they need to get. What's in the book, I ask, just because I'm curious. Cray shows me lists and little tables that look like they've been ripped from many different books and then pasted into this one notebook. It's a load of tips and tricks for when we're hunting ingredients. Like what? Well, like, I'm looking for dirt from a crossroads, but the book says it can't be a crossroads that eventually leads to a church, and it can't be crossed by running water, which is more than three handbreadths across. I half laugh. Why? He shrugs. There are reasons. And why do you need this dirt? Again, the shrug. Sophia has the grimoire that has all the spells in it, and she tells us what ingredients she wants. Chronicle appears at my side, wearing a black leather jacket over her black t-shirt and skinny jeans. 
it occurs to me we're going out to do something illegal, something that might get me in more trouble than I'm in already, and I really don't care. I'm surprised when Chronicle, after leading me out of the house and through the village to the university campus, starts walking towards the bus stop. Aren't we going to get this stuff here, I ask. Chronicle raises a scarlet eyebrow. Rule one of life at Wayward, don't shit where you eat. We stand and wait for the bus, and because there's no one else around, Chronicle starts to tell me a little bit about what my life as Stone is going to be like. Because you're initiated now, we can actually do magic in front of you, and we can teach you things too, which is useful, because it means we won't have to look after you all the time. I don't need looking after. She laughs, not nasty, but definitely disbelieving. Of course you do. Anyway, you'll get lessons from all of us. Sophia will teach you a few things too, but mostly it'll be Cray, Ilex, Nara and Campion who will help you out. Why? Because Sophia has more important things to be getting on with. She takes a small green journal from her jacket pocket and opens it. You've got a notebook and that's going to be your own little grimoire. You can write down all these lessons in it. So what's in the big grimoire? The accumulated knowledge of the coven. Hundreds of books, decades of witches and Satanists and oh, pretty much any magically inclined cult or following for the last hundred years. Things you don't need to know about right now. Satanists. Great. Now pay attention, Chronicle orders me. This is how you're going to be travelling from now on. I want to say something smart about how I've been on buses before, but before I can, she opens her book and shows me a picture of a stick man outlined in dots. There are rainbow coloured circles all through the centre of the man, and red between his legs, right up to purple between his eyes, and white on top of his head. These are chakras, Chronicle tells me. They're eastern, and basically that's what controls energy flow in your body. They're the gates that magic passes through as it comes from the earth, and through you. Of course you have magic in you already, but if you need more, this is how you're going to get it. Clearly, she's going to tell me a lot of random gibberish. I decide to just nod and take it in. My stomach is a mess of nerves because I know we're probably going to be stealing. As much as I don't care that it's a crime, I still don't relish the idea of being caught. So far, my only experience of theft has been a bit of bag rummaging during break at school. Hardly the same as nicking stuff from shops. The bus passes us and goes to make its drop off further up the campus before turning round and starting to come back. When you get on the bus, pull a handful of power out of all those chakras and it should look black like all those colours mixed together. Then sort of throw it at the driver's eyes, like you're throwing glitter or sand. Why? To blind him. She caught the look on my face and rolled her eyes. For about a second, Jesus, just enough time to get past him without paying. The bus draws up and I feel a jab of fear. I'm so going to get shouted at by the driver. I'm not exactly invisible. Pink hair, black gothy clothes. He's going to notice me. Chronicle gets on ahead of me and I watch her fingers. For a second, no more. I think I see a kind of shadow in her cupped palm, then it's gone. She walks onto the bus and the driver doesn't even look at her. I swallow, step up and try to imagine that my hand is full of shadow. I flick my fingers at the driver and he blinks at me. Ticket to town, he says with a thick Polish accent. I try again and he frowns at me. Ticket? I scrunch my fingers up hard, feeling my nails bite into my palm. I imagine power, black and fast running under my feet, like an invisible stream, shooting up through my stupid rainbow chakras, like an oily geyser. It runs down into my arm, rushes around in my hand, a curling wave of power. I throw it at the driver, less like glitter and more like gravel, and his head actually jerks back, cracking against the window behind him. I run past, onto the bus, and scrunch down in the seat next to Chronicle. The driver shakes his head to himself, closes the doors, 
and muttering in Polish starts the engine and moves off. Good, Chronicle says. A little too forceful, but good. I didn't do that, did I? I ask. Can I really use magic? How could I when I didn't even believe in it? Of course you did, Chronicle says harshly. You can't go around questioning your own power. It has to be part of you or how you know when to use it. I don't know if I believe her, but taking out my notebook, I write down what's just happened under the heading chakras and blinding. After I'm done writing, I look out the window and watch birds flying high over the fields and train lines on the way to town. Was it really only two days since I'd left home? So much has changed. I almost don't feel like I've got parents anymore. We get off at a stop by the supermarket, a massive Sainsbury's, and Chronicle walks right in through the front door ahead of me while I look at the two security guards on the door and the three cameras over it, feeling my heart hitch. We are so going to get caught. I'm also a bit worried that someone from school might see me. I will die of embarrassment. I've worked so hard to look and act like Chloe, but a glimpse of me in this outfit will have me branded a weirdo forever. Though privately, the swishy layers of my skirt are starting to make me feel quite sexy. Chronicle has a shopping list, and that's almost funny enough to make me stop worrying. A shopping list for a shoplifter. We're low on cereal, powdered milk, powdered eggs, tins, dry stuff, and pretty much everything in the bathroom, she mutters. Okay, time for lesson two. She takes a plastic bag out of her pocket, the clear kind that I usually get my weed in, only this is full of dirt. What's that? Conjuring powder. I raise my eyebrows. We're going to have to learn how to make it, but using it is forbidden unless it's to procure supplies for the entire coven, Chronicle warns. You can't just go using it to get things for yourself. It's too powerful and it would attract attention. What's it made from then? The crossroad dirt, like what Frey is getting today. Lodestone, some other things. Chronicle waves me off. What you need to learn right now is how to use it. She gets me to hold out my hand and pinches some of the dirt into it. It's fine and powdery like ash, with little bits of something white and hard in it, and black specks. It's, it's clearly been ground down finely. You put the powder on what it is that we need, like these tin tomatoes, Chronicle explains. And in a well-lit supermarket full of morning shoppers, she sprinkles some dirt on the very back row of tins. Now what? I ask sceptically. We keep shopping. It's surreal walking up and down the aisles where I'd been shopping with my parents less than a month before. There's the same buy one get one free on toilet paper that was there last time. The same chirpy music over the speakers. This is where I got my first panty liners, excited and embarrassed as mum picked them out. This is where dad took me while I was faking sick from school back in my first year of secondary. He'd let me come with me and buy me some peach iced tea and chicken super noodles, maybe a magazine since I was ill. He knew I hadn't made any friends yet, and he never made me go when I didn't want to. And here I was with a witch. A witch myself, sprinkling magic dirt on things I had no intention of paying for. Ready, Chronicle says, as she sprinkles the last of the powder on a big box of assorted biscuits. Four? Just come with me. She pushes the empty trolley all the way to the back of the shop, where there's a little alcove by the fire exit. No one even looks at us. Hey! I jump as Chronicle sprinkles dirt over my head. It tickles my neck as it makes its way into my clothes. Oh, hush up. She sprinkles powder over her own head. Hold my hand. I take her hand, which feels cold and dry in mine. What are we doing? It's a spell. You'll have to write it down later, but for now, just repeat after me. A spell. In a supermarket. I want to roll my eyes, but there was the bus driver before. Maybe there's something to this magic crap. Keeper of what disappears, Chronicle begins in a slow, intense voice. Hear me now, open your ears. 
It's probably just a draught from the door, but I feel the hair on the back of my neck prickle. Find for us now what we seek. This we will by earth, air, fire and sea. A gift of salt is yours, if you provide for us this day. She squeezes my fingers. Say it. I say the words, and as I do so, she says them along with me. There's a hum in the air, like the first thudding beats of a track that will drag us all out onto the dance floor. It's as if a circuit closes. There's a crackle like static through our fingers. The world shrinks for a second and the words go round and round me, flying and mixing up until they're just letters and sounds and our voices. There, Chronicle takes her hand from mine and pushes the trolley back into the aisle. Now we take what we need. We go back to the start and Chronicle takes black plastic sacks from her bag and puts them in the trolley. We fill them as we go, taking each item that we marked with conjuring powder. She has a glass bottle of rock salt, and every time I lift down a box or packet, she places a pinch of salt in its place. No one looks at us. People walk right by and don't for one moment question what two teenage girls are doing with rubbish bags full of food and bathroom supplies. We get to the door, and my heart is thundering like a speaker cranked up too high, but we pass through the doors and out into the sunlight. There's no hand on my shoulder, no shrill alarm, the barrier between the shop and the outside world, the one you have to queue up and pay to cross, just doesn't exist for us. Chronicle abandons the trolley and we each take the neck of a sack in each hand, walking across the car park and back towards the bus stop. How did we even get away with that, I say, struggling to keep up with Chronicle's strides? That can't have been magic. Magic isn't... Say it's not real. I dare you. Chronicle swings her red hair and grins at me. It's on your side, Stone. Believe in it and it'll take you wherever you want to go. Chapter 10. That afternoon, Cray finds me sitting on the windowsill of the girl's bedroom, scribbling in my notebook. Someone's a keen student, considering she thinks magic is bullshit. Shut up, I say, glancing at him, like any sane person would believe in magic until they actually saw it. You did see it, he reminds me. I saw a crappy coin trick. Chronicle made us invisible in Sainsbury's. He laughs and comes over to sit with me, arranging his feet so they touch the toes of mine on the cracked and peeling sill. Chronicle made a deal with the Fae in Sainsbury's. Little different. Whatever, it was wicked. You know, Chronicle told everyone that you almost knocked a bus driver unconscious. I blush. That's a good thing. Well, not good, because that wasn't the aim of the exercise, but it shows you've got power, which is good. Power that I can use to dodge bus fares and steal beans. He nudges my knee. That's just the beginning, trust me. Now that we're getting stronger, now that we've got the coven in Bristol, we can start really trying to build up a life. He leans back against the wall. I mean, think about it. Conjured furniture, a house of proper electric. We can forge all kinds of things with magic, seriously. If I can turn a stone into a pound, why not a blanket into a feather bed? Or a bucket into a spa bath? We could have anything. He looks so in awe of his own plans that I can't help but catch some of his enthusiasm. Is that what Sophia wants to do, I ask? Cray nods. She wants us to have a good life. The kind of life we could have if anyone out there had actually given us a chance. What happened to her then? Why did she run away? Cray shrugs. Just what always happens. What do you mean? He shrugs and hops down from the windowsill, holding up his hand to help me down. Come on, you've got more lessons today and I'm meant to be teaching you the basics of making conjuring powder. Hardcore, I mutter, dusting off my skirt. When do I stop getting lessons then? When will I be, you know, qualified? He shrugs. When Sophia thinks you're ready. If you are, you get to be a full-on grunt like me, and then you'll have a f and then you'll have free reign within the rules of the coven. I feel a jab of excitement despite myself. 
Now that I know Cray was telling the truth that magic is real, I'm ready to learn how to do everything that can be done. Maybe I could use that power to fix the broken up parts of my life. I miss my mum and dad, but every time I thought of them, I remembered what mum had said to me on the phone and felt a sting of anger. I would make it okay again, or I'd make them sorry. That afternoon, Cray takes me aside to teach me how to grind up the special crossroad dirt with lodestone, which is the stone equivalent of a magnet to draw things towards you. With tiny bits of bone, which he said came from a dead dog whose spirit brought forth the fae. Corgis being the preferred mode of transport for fairies, obviously. This last part really squicks me out, but Cray assures me that the dog had been well and truly killed by the car that had hit it, and they just recycled its remains into spell ingredients. The bones are clean anyway and kept locked in a big metal toolbox in Sevilla's room with all the other special magical ingredients. Cray lets me keep a little bag of the conjuring powder I make and tells me that a witch needs a few special tools to work magic and the conjuring powder is my first. We're all going to help you find the rest, he tells me, as he clears away the pestle and mortar we've used to grind the powder. What are they? I ask, still trying to write down the method for making the conjuring powder. Well, there's the ceremonial knife for directing energy, the cauldron for making potions and holding sacrificial fires, and a chalice for holding offerings. Potions? Seriously? I raise my eyebrows. And offerings to what? To the gods, Cray says smartly. That's where our power comes from, the ancient gods that people used to worship, before Christianity came along and made all of them into the one devil. So you worship the devil. Cray shakes his head with a smile. You're going to ask a lot of questions, aren't you? Sorry. No, it's great. I like that. He takes my hand gently in his own and I look up at him. The light of the two candles on the table next to us winks off of his nose stud. His eyes are amused, bright, and his chubby fringe hangs into them, silky and fine. Comparatively, I feel really grungy. Cray leans forward and kisses me, his lips soft against mine. Come for a walk with me, he says. He takes me out of the house to where the trees are shrouded in shadow and the road is a slither of black ribbon, strung with the headlights of a handful of cars. We walk together through the silent village and along the long dark road towards the campus where the library and the theatre are still lit up like massive stone lanterns. There's stained glass in some of the windows and it glows blue and green in the light. This way, Cray says, taking me past the lit up buildings and onto the grass behind the largest one, the Georgian mansion that's right in the middle of campus. Behind it there's a short slope of grass that leads down to huge oak trees, tufts of fern and long grass. Shimmering below and reflecting nothing save for the darkness and the first few pinprick stars is a lake. For a moment my breath catches in my throat. It's such a beautiful unexpected sight, the expanse of water under the dark blue sky. I can make out birds moving on the silky water and hear their lonely cries. It's lovely isn't it, Cray says, voice hushed like we're in church. I like coming out here just to watch it. Sometimes I stay for hours. Across the lake on the dark wooded slope there's a small building of bone-coloured stone. That's where people used to take tea when this place was still a manor house, Cray tells me. Want to go and look? I nod and he takes my hand, leading me surely through the shadows, down a steep gravel path and over a tiny bridge that crosses the lake at its thinnest point. I feel a million miles from Michaela, who only ever looked at the river if she was meeting people under the bridge in town to drink and smoke. Cray takes me up to the little stone building. It has cool but dry flag floor and a tall ceiling in which pigeons rustle about as they roost. Cray and I sit down and look out over the lake, up at where the university buildings loom. I feel like I'm on the edge of the world. You can kiss me if you like, I find myself saying. Cray rests his hand on the floor on one side of me so I can feel his arm across my back. So you still want me to, he asks. I thought maybe with the initiation you might be worried. I'm not worried, I say. I'm... 
half a laugh and grin. I'm a freaking witch. That's weird, right? Kissing someone I met at the bus station is kind of normal next to that. I break off as Craig kisses me. Around us, the night is almost silent, save for the shrieks of the far-off nightbirds. I reach out and tangle my fingers in his soft hair, feeling him press against me. We creep back into the wayward house, just as the sky is turning grey in anticipation of dawn. We slept a little down at the lake, me wrapped in Craig's jacket and sitting with my back to his chest. We'd also talked, and he told me about how stifling his house had been, how his parents had controlled every second of his time, even deciding which musical instruments he was going to take lessons in, and which books he could read. I told him about my parents and how I missed them, but I also hated them for being so cruel to me. I told him about Tasha and how she turned me away from her house when I was desperate for somewhere to stay, how I hadn't had a single friend before Chloe and Tasha piled up with me. When we part on the landing outside our respective rooms, Craig kisses me one more time and puts a cold, round thing into my hand. I look at it and recognise the stone that he changed into a coin to get me to trust him. Night stone, he says. Night, Cray. I wish they're back. They work me hard over the next few days. I'm forever trailing someone, learning something new. For my second lesson, Nara shows me how to glamour myself and other objects to look like other things. That's what Cray had done with the stone that first night. All glamours last for seven hours, seven being the number of the Fae, who gave these tricks to the witches in the first place. At least that's what Nara tells me. You have to pull your power over yourself, or over the objects you want to change, she explains, demonstrating with several items. I watch, totally breathless, as she makes a lamp with a broken shade turn into a small vase of flowers. A book shifts into a golden plate. That's amazing, I say, touching the cold metal of the plate. It feels completely real. Nara blushes. I'm the best at the stuff. It's my speciality, she admits. Do something else, I say eagerly. Nara gives in to me and does a few more tricks. She changes her headscarf into long black hair, then blue curls and then bright green. When I think she has nothing left to show me, she sprouts daisies, peeping through her hair like she's a shrub. I laugh and she laughs with me. Is it easier, changing your scarf like that? The hijab? No, it's actually harder. Oh, so... So why do I wear it? Well, obviously because you want to. I've actually been wondering, but can you still be a Muslim if you're a witch? A lot of people out there practice both. I don't really. Not anymore. Nara shifts the glamour away and straightens her hijab. But we work by raising power. Sometimes people raise it by not eating or by drumming, chanting, calling it from the earth. I get my power from covering my hair. I always did it before I left home. It gives me strength. I'm a bit stunned. She's so sure of herself. I wish I had that. Why did you leave home? Well, my dad moved to London to find a job. He's a HR manager, but he got made redundant. She sounds like she's told this story too many times already. I wonder how many new recruits have asked her the same thing. He and my mum aren't together anymore. She lives in France. So my brother Ty was looking after me and my sister. He didn't like my boyfriend and we had a lot of fights about it. So you moved out? I moved in with my boyfriend and he had so many arguments with his parents because they couldn't afford to have me living there, even though I did chip in a bit. Anyway, we broke up because she looks at her hands. I'm not really interested in sex. Anyway, he was, so after we broke up, his parents got fed up with me and told me to go back to my brother, but I couldn't face it, so I tried looking for my dad. Did you not find him? I ask. My mind's still partially blown by the fact that Nora isn't interested in sex. I mean, I'm a girl, and I still think about it all the time. I know tons of girls at school who are the same, or pretend they don't like it, but do it all the time anyway. Girls who talk about it, girls that don't. 
girls that prefer girls or boys or both or who've been with the same person forever i suppose it makes sense that there are people who aren't interested at all you're thinking about the sex thing nara makes a face everyone does when i tell them i was just you know working it out she shrugs it's fine anyway i called my dad but his mobile number wasn't in use anymore and i hadn't been to school for a bit and they got on to my brother about it and my sister eva kept texting me about how annoyed he was they didn't have a number or an address for dad either i didn't want to go home so i was hanging around the bus station and that's how campion found me do you still want to find your dad i can't imagine anyone not wanting to know where their parents are especially if they just disappeared nara shakes her head i keep up with my email at the library Eva messaged me and said they were pretty sure my dad just met someone new and started over with them. Ty was so paranoid about Eva running away like me that he won't let her date anyone, and now she doesn't like me. Shit. Sorry. It's alright. People here get me better than they ever did, she says, digging around in a box of bits and pieces. She holds up a steel nail. Let's see you turn this into a pencil. It takes me four hours to get the hang of it, but eventually I manage to make a pencil even if it still looks slightly shiny and silver. After that, I can't stop. I'm too excited. I shut myself away in the witch's bedroom and take out my bundle of wet clothes. There's a sock right on top of the heap, stripy and pink, with a hole in the toe. I lay it on the floor and look at it, focusing my energy, feeling a kind of pins and needles tickle in my fingers. Just like with the nail, I wrap that energy around the object, trying to visualise it clean and new. I close my eyes, the better to see the sock as I want it to be, then risk a peek. It looks as though it's in soft focus, like a drawing of a sock by some cack-handed child. Creasing my brow, I focus harder. The edges sharpen. It loses the 2D look of a picture. And as I sit back, shaking a little, the sock is once more as perfect as it was the day I bought it. I pick it up, then drop it in disgust. It might look new and fresh, but it's still wet and mildew-scented. Clearly, the look of something is the easiest part to change. The scent and feel is beyond me, for the moment. I practice on that sock until I feel ridiculous. First, I summon the memory of soft cotton sliding over my cold toes, then the smell of mum's laundry powder, the sound the fabric made if you stretched it out and twanged it. I was nearly bursting a blood vessel in my forehead by the time I'd made the sock smell and feel new as well as looking it. Excited, I trip downstairs to show Nara, but she's nowhere to be found. Cray, however, is sitting on the sofa, playing with his cards. Hey, what's the sock for? he asks. I glamoured it. I can see that. How? He grins. Not too hard to see through a beginner's glamour if you know how. Don't worry, it'd fool anyone who wasn't looking for it. I glare. I worked all afternoon on this. Sorry. Let's have a feel, then. I pass in the sock and he looks surprised, rubbing the clean, soft cotton between his fingers. It feels new. I made it new. Smell it. That's exactly the smell of the fabric softener my mum uses. He sniffs the snock hesitantly and looks like a total mug while doing so. Nara didn't say she was teaching you that. I worked it out. It's just like picturing the look of it, only with the smell as well. He looks at me like he's not sure if he should be proud of me or not. I blush. For someone who didn't believe in magic a few days ago, you're taking to it fast. Fast? That took me four hours. He grins. Want to try something else? Like, like, I'm pretty sure that between the two of us, we can have you doing proper glamours by the end of the week. Glamours that could fool Sophia, even. I stretch and sit down on the sofa next to him. Another time, I've had it for today. I nudge him. Teach me that instead. 
patience. Yeah, I think I'm going to need it. He rolls his eyes at me, but sweeps the cards back into a deck and starts to shuffle them. He smells like brand new leather and incense smoke. I wonder if I could glamour that smell onto something. If I could make my wet and mildewed clothes smell like that. Or like Prada perfume or anything I wanted. Cray? Hmm? Are you glamoured? He turns to me with a crease between his eyebrows. What do you mean? Do you have a glamour on right now? No. Oh, okay. Why do you ask? Just, I feel my face flame. You smell nice, for someone who lives in a squat, and you and everyone else here have nice clothes and stuff, even though you don't have any money. He shrugs. We get them the way we get everything else. Were you glamoured when we met? I watch as he avoids my gaze, smiling shyly. Just a bit. What did you change? My nose. What? I laugh. Why? I don't like it much. He cups a hand over it, right where the middle part is crooked. And I had a spot right on it. I saw you and I didn't want to sit down with this massive bubo on my face, so I just covered it. On impulse, I leap forward and give him a squeeze. It's a nice nose. Besides, I look like a drowned rat, remember? He puts his arms around me and my heart jumps a little. I remember. You look like a proper little witch, all windswept and gothy. Shut up, I hiss, embarrassed. It's true. I knew right then that you were going to fit right in here and that I liked you. Ugh, young sodding love, at it again. We both twist around and glare at Ilex, who's leaning in the doorway. Jealous? Cray asks. Hardly. Ilex makes a show of rolling his eyes. Just got back and thought you might like to see what we got hold of in town. Maybe later, Cray says. I'll leave you to sicken each other with affection then. Please do, I say. Ilex leaves and a few seconds later we hear him in the kitchen with Chronicle, talking loudly about how she should probably steal some condoms next time she goes to Sainsbury's. I'm blushing all over. Cray kisses the top of my head. Don't listen to them. He's just bitter because he's all alone and you're the first newbie in months. He was hoping for someone to get off with. Ew. Yeah, I never said he was a gentleman. Cray shifts away from me and lines up his cards. So, patience. Patience turns out to be exactly what I need. No one will teach me anything new until I have the basics of glamouring objects down to a fine art. My trick with the sock took me four hours. I need to be able to produce better results in less time. So I practice, alone and with the others. Mostly Nara, the mistress of all things glamour. Nails into pencils, twigs into pens, blades of grass into hair grips. After a few days, I can make all of these small changes in less than 60 seconds. I practice with my old wet clothes until I can make them into clean new clothes in any colour of fabric I want, but that takes time. Five minutes is the fastest I can glamour my outfit, but it means my two sets of clothes can become something new every day, clean and fresh and comfortable. I learn how to change pebbles into money so I can buy small things from shops in town, nothing too big, nothing that would cause a stir when the money for it changes back into stones. I even make food out of leaves and dirt, but that's what it tastes of, leaves and dirt. I learned that to get food, real food, you have to use conjuring powder. In our second week, Nora even shows me how to see through amateurish glamours. Any glamour only lasts seven hours, but you don't have to wait that long to see what's real and what isn't. A thin glamour looks like a cheap market knockoff, too shiny, too colourful, tacky and fake. At last, Nara says I'm ready for another lesson. I hope you've enjoyed this latest instalment of Wayward. It did turn into an episode that was slightly longer than I thought because clearly I got very excited and wrote two very long chapters. 
but um, I hope that you're enjoying the more magical side of things now that that's coming into play and that you are picking up on some of the less than okay stuff, the stuff that doesn't seem quite right and are hopefully coming up with some theories about what the mystery behind this place really is. I'd love to hear some of those so drop them into the comments or message me on Twitter or email. It would be fantastic to hear from you and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!